Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have uh, chosen to reveal yourself to us and to do so on on the most gracious terms. Uh, Lord, indeed, when you talk about the reading and the preaching of, of the word, you often talk about it as that which gives your people life, as food, as drink, as manna from heaven, as that which possesses a power because of your promises and because of the spirit that attends the word to even bring newness of life, to affect a deeper repentance, to affect greater understanding, to affect a thriving, uh, that we would glorify you and enjoy you forever. So Lord, we pray this morning that as the word is preached, um, you would show us Jesus, uh, that uh, even as we sing, that our, uh, that we would make room for him in our hearts. Um, Lord, for those of us who have put our faith in you, uh, would you um, make us eager receivers uh, that we would grow in Christ? And for those who are here um, who have yet to put their faith in you, Lord, would today be the day where they would look to you and find newness of life, turning from self and all other trusts to the Savior Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, Charles de Gaulle, the... uh, President of France once said it was impossible to rule a country that had 246 different kinds of cheese. And, and, and I kind of felt his pain uh, as I was looking at this passage and trying to figure out how to get my arms around, you know, 50 names in 17 verses. So, you know, have mercy. Um, but thankfully, Matthew helps us out quite a bit. Uh, first of all, he begins his gospel by setting a bearing. Uh, he sets a direction. Uh, he shows us uh, in just the first few words of this gospel where he's taking us. And those first words sound kind of procedural. Uh, It's simply to say the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, but the actual phrase that Matthew uses here is Biblos Geneseos Jesu Christu, which literally means the book of Genesis of Jesus Christ. So in that way, Matthew's gospel shares a lot in common with John's gospel, which started with the words in the beginning, the very first words of the Bible. And so like John, Matthew begins his gospel in getting us thinking about beginnings. But how should we think of this introduction in calling it a book of Genesis? Well, I I think to kind of get at answering that question, you know, uh, it might help to think about the question that you're asked when you just walk to the counter at Taco Bell, which is small, medium, or large. If we go small with that phrase, we'd have to say that Matthew's book of Genesis is just the next 16 verses or so. Um, That it's, it's essentially just what I've read in the genealogy. If we go medium, we might say it's the next three chapters or so from the, from the genealogy all the way to the epiphany story. But if we go large, we'd have to say that Matthew's Genesis is the whole gospel. That all 28 chapters from the birth of Jesus right through his ascension unto heaven is a new Genesis kind of story. So just just hang on to that question for a second. Um, In order to decide whether or not this is a small, medium, or large Genesis story, I think we need to pay attention first to two words we would probably overlook most readily. And those two words are Jesus Christ. Matthew is writing his gospel in order to tell us, he says, the story of Jesus Christ. 
He's telling us the story of Jesus. The name Jesus means God saves. But just as John's last name isn't Baptist, Jesus' last name is not Christ. Baptist and Christ are titles. You might even say that they're like job descriptions, that John was sent to baptize. And just as John was sent to baptize, Jesus has come to be the Christ, to take on the office of the Christ. The Heidelberg Catechism explains that title that is given to Jesus by saying that he is the one ordained by God the Father and anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption. Jesus Christ, then, is as much announcement as it is name. That is to say that God has sent one who saves, that we might know the truth concerning God's plans for redemption. And if that weren't enough, Matthew actually freights this name with the entire history of redemption by the end of the first verse, when he goes on to explain that Jesus Christ is son of David, son of Abraham. Now, to mention just those two names is to be immediately plugged into the two great covenants of salvation in the Old Testament. The covenant with Abraham was God's promise of a descendant who would bless all the families of the earth. God established that as a covenant of faith so that somehow Abraham would have children that would be included in God's family, not by way of birth, but by way of belief, belief in his God, in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the the result of which would be a family of faith, which would come to be a great family, encompassing not just tribes or ethnicities, but, but all the peoples of the world, so that they would outnumber even the stars of the sky and the sands on the shore of the sea. The covenant with David was God's promise that one would come from David's royal line who would be a king, not just for a period of regency, but for eternity, reigning not merely over Israel, but over God's kingdom, the Abrahamic kingdom, over all of God's people. And those two covenants share a couple of important things in common. Each involves an heir, uh, a descendant, not not descendants. So for Abraham, that descendant is identified as the seed. For David, the descendant is identified as the son. And so here, Jesus Christ is identified as both, as both the Abrahamic seed and the Davidic son, God's anointed, one sent to save. So just, you know, one verse in, Matthew wants us to know that in Jesus, all the redemptive promises have found their fulfillment. So that through David, you have in Jesus an eternal king. Through Abraham, you have a seed who is a God for everyone, everywhere. He's both Israel's longed-for king and the world's longed-for God and hope. And that means that when it comes to the question of small, medium, or large, we go large. Because Matthew's genealogy can't be looked at as nothing more than a genealogy of relatives. It is, in fact, a genealogy of redemption. It tells the story of redemption. And that means that after verse 1, the remaining 1,070 verses of Matthew's gospel are just commentary. On Jesus Christ, son of Abraham, son of David. 
Someone once summed up Matthew's gospel by saying, if you want to understand it, you just need to read it as the gospel of, as, as the gospel of more than. Jesus comes as more than, greater than the temple, greater than the Sabbath, greater than the law, greater than Jonah or Solomon or David or Abraham. So with all of that in mind, when, when we read this genealogy, and thank you for being patient in hearing it read, I know it's pretty dense, you can't read it like Ancestry.com. Uh, Matthew is not doing, you know, the linear work of tracing out one's family history generation by generation. And, and, and I want to say, in fact, if you, if you impose that standard on this genealogy, it will make no sense to you. It might be interesting, but you will miss the message that Matthew's trying to convey to us. So it's vital to understand that up front. And it's especially vital because there is a cottage industry, some might say it is thriving, that, you know, is wholly dedicated to debunking the truth of the Bible. And very often, if you've ever read any of those books, they go to the biblical genealogies as kind of exhibit A of, you know, the nonsense that is Scripture. But that is to ignore the fact that the author's intent was never to do Ancestry.com. That's not to say that the biblical writers couldn't have done something like that. They certainly could have. But they happily not only bend our rules, they break them. Because they are making a theological, primarily a theological point, more than a genealogical point. So like most biblical genealogies, for example, Matthew's is selective. He leaves lots of people out. In one place, Matthew skips four generations without batting an eye. Another, another issue with this genealogy, it's a patriarchal genealogy, of course, but it includes women. There's even a couple of places where he changes names to make a theological point. None of that is done to pull the wool over our eyes. All of it is done so that a point would be made. If Matthew wanted to, he could have easily provided us with a straight-down-the-line genealogy. The people he's writing to had access to the scriptures where they could have cross-checked all of this, but he chose not to. And he chose not to so that this genealogy would serve as a proclamation of God's redemptive purposes in history. So let's get into this. Matthew does us a great favor in not only uh, providing us with a genealogy, but he actually in verse 17 provides us with instructions on how we ought to read it. Um, and he does that by telling us essentially not to read it name by name, but instead in verse 17 he says, Look, there's three generational lines, each with 14 names, each with 14 generations. And, and those generational lines are like subplots that support the overall plot. So each one sort of stands as like a leg on the stool that upholds the, you know, the, the chair. So that the first line, the essence of that subplot is the immensity of God's mercy. The second line highlights the necessity of God's judgment, and the third highlights the tenacity of his faithfulness. Those are the three subplots, mercy, judgment, faithfulness. So let's look at the first line. What has to get our attention right off the bat is the prominence of four women. Uh, aside from the mention of Mary at the end of the genealogy, this is the only section that, uh, in which fathers are connected with mothers. And again, it's, it's unusual to include women in a patriarchal genealogy, but it's not unheard of. So 
You might include women if it would, you know, some way kind of boost the family reputation. Um, if, if, you know, so for example, if you had a, like a Betsy Ross or an Eleanor Roosevelt in your family line, you might want to, you know, let people know that you come from good stock or something like that. Um, now, all of that makes the inclusion of these pr particular women pretty shocking. Because these four women, and they are Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba, are the furthest thing from people who you would include to elevate Jesus' genealogical cred. Who are they? Tamar's story shows up in Genesis 38 in one of the more scandalous stories you'll find in the whole Bible. Tamar was Judah's daughter-in-law who was compelled to play the prostitute in order to trick her father-in-law into keeping his promise. And the result of that whole soap opera was that Judah became one of the great-grandfathers of our Lord, even as she became one of his great-grandmothers. Another one of Jesus' great-grandmothers is Rahab, who you can read about in Joshua 2. Uh, while Tamar played the prostitute, Rahab actually plied her trade as a prostitute, professionally. And she's most famous for providing help to the spies of Israel and Jericho. She's, but interestingly, she's not remembered for her moral failure, but she's celebrated not once, but twice in the New Testament, once in Hebrews 11 as a model of faith, and then again in James 2 as a model of good works. She's kind of the essence of faith and works. And then there's Ruth, and she's the least morally questionable of these women, even though she's identified as a Moabite, which means she doesn't come from a good family. She's descended from the incestuous line of Lot. And then finally, we have Bathsheba, who's not even mentioned by name, but is referred to here as the wife of Uriah, which kind of makes its own point, that she was never David's lawful wife. And of course, she is connected with one of the more scandalous stories in the Bible as well, not as a perpetrator, but as a victim, as a victim to David's murderous scheme to have her husband killed so that he could have her. So those are the four women of the first line, and apart from all being female, they, they share some other important things in common. The most striking thing about the four of them is none of them are Jews. Ruth, as I said, was a Moabite. Tamar was a Canaanite. Rahab, a Jerichoite. And Bathsheba was a Hittite. And the other things they share in common, as we've seen in some way or another, is they're all connected with these tainted stories or tainted backgrounds. Each of them has some kind of moral or morally questionable story as part of their, their life. And not only that, but for everyone but Ruth, each of them had to do with sexual sin of some kind. And all of this is showing up in our Lord's genealogy. A genealogy where you would expect some effort to be made to, again, elevate the purity and dignity of Jesus' family line so that everyone reading this would know he comes from good people. I mean, anyone in their right mind would have left these skeletons in the closet, right? And yet Matthew doesn't leave them there. He actually pulls them out of the closet and spotlights them. Not only that, he takes the extra step of leaving a whole lot of very dignified women out of the genealogy. He had some low-hanging fruit. Jesus had some great matriarchs of, the Jewish, of Jewish history in his family line, but there's not a mention of Sarah or Rebecca 
or Rachel or Leah? Now, I don't know about you, but I'm beginning to think a point is being made. And you know how it goes with all this family history stuff, right? I mean, as far as I, I, I'm, I don't know a whole lot about my family history, but it's not very impressive. But I guarantee you, if I had a Charles Dickens or an Abraham Lincoln in my family, you would hear about it. And by the same token, if there was a Charles Manson or a Harvey Weinstein, you know, I, I might just keep that information to myself. But Matthew doesn't sweep this stuff under the rug or shove skeletons in the closet. He doesn't lift a finger to try and puff up the credentials of Jesus as he easily could have. Instead, he seizes on the stories of scandals and scoundrels, and he puts them front and center. And so the question is, why would you ever do something like that? Why doesn't he do what so many people feel is a very important thing to dedicate their energies to and make a stand for Jesus? Protect his good name. Well, aside from the fact that Jesus can take care of his own reputation, the answer is, I think, simply this, that Matthew is preaching the gospel. He is showing us that God loves and God uses and God honors the weakest and the worst kinds of people, and that, even, that through even the most broken of stories, he is at work. This is, again, the book of Genesis of Jesus Christ. It's a new creation story, and it comes with new matriarchs. So what we might chalk up as nothing more than an embarrassing scandal, Matthew embraces as a song of redemption. People whose lives would otherwise be defined by shame, he says, look how they shine. Prostitutes become paragons of faith, victims of the powerful who seem to have been used and discarded and, made and defined as worthless are shown to have played an important role in the plan of God to his glory. Outsiders are honored. Insiders aren't even mentioned. You begin to get the sense that there's no failure that can't be redeemed, right? No scandal that can't be forgiven. No identity that can't be elevated and honored to the glory of God and the good of the world. There's, there's, there's a place, there's an honored place for people who, for all kinds of rational reasons, should have been subbed, shoved aside and their names never mentioned again. And yet here they are. When Luther read this genealogy, he made this observation. He said, oh, Christ is the kind of person who is not ashamed of sinners. In fact, he puts them right in the family tree. So that's the first line of the genealogy. It's a story of God's immense mercy. It's a mercy present and at work from the very beginning and that makes the next subplot all the more jolting, especially as it seems pretty glorious at first. I mean, the first name you see is King Solomon. Um, and after, but, but it's not long until things unravel. So that by the end of this line, God's people have been conquered and exiled. And the thing about exile, the story of the exile, is it came because of the sin of God's people. Uh, exile is... God's righteous judgment on the sin of a people with whom he had persisted, relenting from judgment again and again and again, so that when it finally came, it appears as though God has finally come to his senses with these people, and I've had it and I'm done. 
It was a time when it looked like all was lost, like the land and the temple and the royal line of kings. And certainly for those who lived through it, it would have seemed that along with all of that, God's promises were over as well. But as in the first, first line, the second line has got some surprises. The surprise of the first line is the four women. The surprise of the second line is, is what I'll call the four changes. Um, and just to tick them off quickly, they are these. The first is that when the name King Asa is changed to the psalmist Asaph. Secondly, there's three kings left out after the mention of Joram. Thirdly, the name King Amon is changed to the prophet Amos. And finally, the mention of King Jehoiakim is left out before King Jehoiakim. And again, skeptics love to pounce on this and say, there you go, the Bible's full of mistakes. The genealogy doesn't match up to the record. Well, the first thing to say is that if Matthew had a nefarious agenda and was trying to write his own little story, he wouldn't have been so obvious. This is obvious stuff. He's not concerned about perfectly listing the succession of Judean kings like he's writing a succession of American presidents in a McGraw-Hill textbook. So that if you and I read it and saw, you know, it went from Franklin Pierce to Abraham Lincoln, we would say, well, where's James Buchanan? Right? He does what other biblical writers have done. He leaves some people out for the purpose of economy. Um, it wasn't uncommon to do that, to call someone four generations preceding another person a father in the sense of a forefather. And that's what's going on here. But then the, the, the stickier question is, why these name changes? Why change the name Asa to Asaph, the name Amon to Amos? Some have chalked it up to a scribal error. Someone was copying this gospel and they, and they got it wrong. Others have said Matthew got mixed up and got the names wrong. But I, I don't think those arguments hold up since the information is so readily referenced. I think Matthew did this on purpose. Uh, not to pull a fast one, but to make a point. So that just as his point in the first line was the depth of God's mercy, the point in the second line would be that we would know something of the depth of his holiness. Matthew will not let us take a shallow view of the person and work of the Lord so that we would do what we so readily do, depending on if you're kind of a conservative person or a liberal person, and you, you kind of shape a convenient theology so that, you know, one of us might apprehend God as really, really merciful, but only kind of holy. Another person might say, well, he's really, really, really holy, but not always that merciful. But Matthew wants us to know the Lord as he truly is, as fully holy and merciful. Or as John would put it, when he saw Jesus, full of grace and truth. You see, the names Asaph and Amos stick out in this section like sore thumbs. They're every bit as glaring as the four women in the first line. These names, Asaph and Amos, are names that come with very strong associations for people who are familiar with the Bible. Uh, it would be like me saying to you all right now, Fred Astaire and Colonel Sanders. And you're all thinking right now about tap dancing and fried chicken. So, I know, it sounds good. Doesn't it? <laughs> Not the tap dancing, the other. Well, that's how it is with Asaph and Amos. That these are names with strong associations, and the associations are these. Uh, Asaph is, the, is associated with the Psalms, and Amos is associated with the prophets. Asaph with praise, Amos with judgment. 
Next to David, Asaph is the great psalmist. He wrote 12 psalms, and Amos is the supreme prophet of social justice in the Bible. He's the one who conveyed God's word to the people to say, take away from me the noise of your songs, the melody of your harps, I will not listen, but let justice roll down like rivers, like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And, and that's why their prominence in this section matters so much, because in the thick of this downward, downward spile of Israel's history, which culminates in exile, there's Asaph. And with him, the call to praise. And, and, in the, and in that same downward spiral, there's Amos. And with him, the call to seek the justice of God and loving our neighbors. It's as if he's saying this is a time when there was the call to prioritize praise. This is the time when there was a call to prioritize justice and loving your neighbor. That, that, that's the essence of the law. Those two prophets summarize that. Love of God and praising him. Love of neighbor and seeking God's justice. So even as it's obvious that Israel has failed in all of that by virtue of the judgment that falls on them, Matthew's wanting us to see that there is a true son of Asaph. There is a true son of Amos. There's a son of praise, a son of justice, one who will keep the fullness of the law, who will even allow something worse than the exile to fall on him. Jesus himself. So at a place in the text where by all rights the story should have ended with what looks like an epitaph at, the, at verse 11, that epitaph being at the time of the deportation to Babylon, the story doesn't end. It should have ended. It should have been a broken two-legged stool of a story, but it persists. It continues. The next line begins with the phrase, after the deportation to Babylon. And I just want to be struck by that phrase for a second. Because there should be no after the deportation to Babylon. Any more than there should be after they put the noose around my neck and dropped the floor out from under me. X, Y, and Z. That was a death sentence. But remember what was said at the start of this whole thing. There's a true son of Abraham. God's promised heir and blessing to all the families of the earth. There's a true son of David. God's promised son and king. Forever, And because that's true, there can be no sin so great as to nullify God's promises for a Savior. There's no failure that's greater than God's faithfulness. Those promises never become untrue. They're in force in the heights and in the depths and the successes and in the failures, in the times when Israel seemed most alive and thriving and in the time when they seemed as good as dead. It's interesting when you sort of trace this story out, isn't it? I mean, at the time... At the end of the first line with King David, the promise seemed most near, didn't it? But yet, it's a thousand years until Jesus will come. And at the end of the second line, during, you know, at the time of the exile, God's promises never seemed further away. It would be another 500 years before Jesus would come. And I think what that means is that when we're at our very best, we need a Savior. When we're at our very worst, we need a Savior. When the third line begins, the promise of God seemed at its furthest away, at its most untrue, at its most broken. I want to say maybe even at its most silly and mythical. And yet it persists. Matthew Henry said that Jesus would come to be born when the seed of Abraham was a despised people, recently become tribute to the Roman yoke, and when the house of David was buried in obscurity. 
For Christ was to be a root of the dry ground. Of the dry ground. And when you read through this last part of the genealogy, it reads like dry ground. It's cracked and dry and dead. I mean, I've been studying the Bible for a long time, and I even managed to graduate from seminary, but I'm, I'm reading this, and I'm going, who are these people? I mean, anybody here a big fan of Shealtiel or Azor or Zadok? Exactly. This is dry and cracked ground. This is the cut-down stump of a once glorious tree, and yet it is the ground from which the Savior will come. Matthew leaves us with one last audacity. It's, it's kind of an easy one to miss. I mentioned before that in verse 17, Matthew really kind of invites us to admire the, the beauty of what God has done in redemptive history by looking at these three generational lines, lines he takes pains to tell us each contain 14 generations. And even though I got through college by fulfilling a math requirement with a class called Ideas and Methods in Mathematics, in which I did not one math problem, I can actually count. And even though Matthew urges us to read this genealogy as three sets of 14 generations, the last generation does not have 14, it has 13. And again, we may think of this as one more example of the Bible revealing itself as flawed, but I think Matthew can count. In fact, I know Matthew can count, and I, not only that, I know he knows his readers can count, and he expects us to. He leaves us one short of 14 generations, I think, not to pull a fast one, but so that we would actually notice it, so that we would ask the question, well, where is that 14th generation? And you, know, you want to know where I think it is? It's right now. We're living in it. We, we are in the age after the coming of Jesus and before his second coming when God is raising up a whole new generation, the generation of his church, a generation that the writers of the scripture commonly call the last day or the last days. The day between the first coming of Jesus and the last. The age in which, as Peter says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance, counting the patience of our Lord as salvation. These are the days, the generation in which, as, God puts, as John puts it in his gospel, that for all who receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That sounds pretty genealogical, doesn't it? Being born into a new family by God's will, not by your own. And in fact, it is genealogical. This is what God is doing in this last generation, giving the right to become children of God, being born again by grace through faith, in Jesus Christ. This is the generation in which you can embrace his faithfulness as greater than any of your failures and indeed can receive a deliverance to overcome even death itself where we can repent and believe in Jesus and be written into God's story and included in his family along with all the other scoundrels because Jesus is that kind of God. He loves sinners. He writes them 
into his own family tree. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this passage and how it tells your story. Uh, Lord, um, I thank you that you love sinners, uh, that you um, don't push away scoundrels like me uh, who have done nothing to earn your affections and have done everything to push it away. And yet, it is your delight not only to save, but in fact to adopt, to uh, Jesus call us brothers and sisters, to affect a relation to the living God that is familial and close, where we can pray to our Father. Thank you for doing that in our day. Thank you for sending Jesus. May we relish the gospel in this season. It's in his name we pray. Amen.